0: Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to Read Smart, the official Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction Podcast with me, Razia Iqbal. Next Tuesday, November the 24th, the winner of the 2020 prize will be announced in a special virtual ceremony. But first, To finish off our special shortlist celebration, today we're focusing on The Haunting of Alma Fielding, a true ghost story. The Haunting of Alma Fielding, a true ghost story, delves into the 1930s case of the Croydon poltergeist, investigated by Nandor Fodor, chief ghost hunter for the International Institute for Psychical Research, written by Samuel Johnson winner Kate Summerscale and pioneer of historical narrative non-fiction Kate Summerscale shadows Fodor's inquiry, delving into long-hidden archives to find the human story behind a very modern haunting. Prize director Toby Mundy recently spoke with Kate Summerscale via Zoom. You can listen now to hear that conversation.
1: Hello and welcome to the latest In Conversation with the Bailey Gifford Prize 2020. I couldn't be happier uh, for this episode to welcome Kate Summerscale. Uh, the distinguished and multi-award-winning author of several bestsellers, among them The Suspicions of Mr Witcher, which of course won the Samuel Johnson Prize, as we were then called in 2008. Her wonderful book The Haunting of Alma Fielding, a true ghost story, is shortlisted for this year's prize and it's by turns gripping and strange and mind-expanding and and brilliant really, and Kate has joined us now to uh, talk about the book. Welcome Kate and congratulations.
2: Thank you,
1: hello. Hello, so there was a lot of supernatural activity in Britain in the thirties. It seems wasn't wasn't there. Um, how did you um, how did you come to this story? How did you find out about Alma Fielding?
2: I found out about the investigation of Alma Fielding and her poltergeist in a, a book published by the ghost hunter himself, who investigated her, Nandor Fodor, in the nineteen fifties. So he was writing about the events of nineteen thirty eight. And I was astonished, not just by the story itself, but when I um, looked around, dug a bit deeper, I realised that there were lots of ghosts in Britain in the 1930s. And um, this was a surprise to me. And I became very curious about why and what form they took. And this particular story seemed a way of sort of crystallising some of, some of those um, emotions and ideas that were swirling around that were issuing in poltergeists and other kinds of ghosts all, all over the place.
1: Did I read somewhere that you were looking for this, for your next book, for a book about hauntings or, is that, did I did I misread that? Yes,
2: I, I did, um, I just sort of, I thought I, f- I fancied writing about a haunting. There's something about the way that, that it, um, uh, the, these things are on the edge of fact and fiction, that they drop out of history, Um, But they're real stories that engage the emotions and the imagination while they happen that I thought might be a sort of fertile area for me. Because I like writing about things that have kind of dropped away and been forgotten and about things that get at what people are scared of and what they fantasize about and desire. So a sort of a way of getting at history from a different angle. And yeah. ghosts seemed like they might be a good um like a conduit for that.
1: Sort of like excavating the unconscious, the unconscious mind of the time or something like yeah, that.
2: Yeah, something like that, exactly. And that's what um Fodor as a ghost hunter was was trying to do in, in his in his world, in a way. So he was quite a good figure to to follow. Figures.
1: Well, I want to ask you more about him in a second, if I may, but but um it wasn't in the castle that the events that caught your eye were taking place, they were taking place in Thornton Heath in Croydon.
2: Yes. Yeah. So tell Amid- us a bit
1: about what was happening and tell us about Alma herself.
2: Well Alma was a 34 year old housewife and um, a mother and um, she was up until this point a perfectly ordinary woman it seemed, um, conventional mm. enough, living in Croydon with her builder husband um, but then in February 1938 she rang the newspapers to report that a poltergeist was attacking her house, smashing crockery and eggs, throwing furniture around, um, a wardrobe had crashed down on her son's bed and um, she she was terrified. And when the reporters turned up they themselves witnessed some weird events in this end of terrace house and um, the, then Fodor and the investigators at the international institute for psychical research got interested and they went down there too
1: (laughs) and so tell us a little bit about this about Nando Fodor he's a rather extraordinary figure he's the other your other major character isn't he
2: yes in a way it's a book about the two of them and the relationship between them he was a jewish hungarian emigre who'd come to london via new york and um had worked for Lord Rothermere until he got his uh, ideal job because he was fascinated by the supernatural and he's he found a job as ghost hunter at the International Institute for Psychical Research and this was
1: actually this is a job a paid job
2: a paid job yes a full-time job so he was um, spending all his time trying trying to track down ghosts and explain supernatural energy
1: was he their only ghost hunter, just out of interest? Or did they have a legion of them?
2: He was the research officer. He was their only paid ghost hunter. There were a lot of... Uh, sort of. He had lots of colleagues who were amateur ghost hunters who would join him um, at seances and experiments and on trips around the country to investigate hauntings.
1: <laughs> so he gets on his bike, or the train, I presume, and goes to, to Croydon. What What's... Um... What happens then? Um, what, what, how, what's their first encounter like?
2: Well, he was quite taken by Alma. He thought she seemed um, very uh, well, alarmed, sincere, attractive, intelligent, and credible. And he, um, he witnessed some strange poltergeist-like events, as did at least two of his colleagues who went down to the house with him. What sort and of so things? Um saucers flying across a kitchen, which nobody could have thrown, uh, s- things tumbling down the stairs, a wine glass extracting itself from a cabinet and smashing on <laughs> the floor. Wow and um, And so he was extremely excited, as were his colleagues, because um he desperately needed to um to find a ghost and to prove himself. As a, as a ghost hunter, because in four years uh, at the Institute, he hadn't quite nailed it, in, in, and the finances at the Institute were under some pressure by now.
1: Huh. That might might be a good moment, actually, if, if it suits you to, to read a bit from the book, because um, having introduced Nandor and yes. Alma, would that be all
2: right? Yes. Um, I will read from the very beginning, um, which is uh, when, Fodor first hears about the poltergeist in Croydon. That would be perfect, thank you. At his office in South Kensington on Monday 21st of February 1938, Nandor Fodor opened a letter from an East End clergyman of his acquaintance. The Reverend Francis Nicoll wanted to alert him to a poltergeist attack in the suburb of Thornton Heath, just south of London, which had been the subject of a report in that weekend's Sunday pictorial. I wonder whether you've seen it, wrote Nicole. Unfortunately, the actual address is not given. The minister thought that the haunting sounded even more remarkable than a similar case in East London that he had helped Fodor to investigate that month. Fodor, a Jewish-Hungarian journalist, had for four years been chief ghost hunter at the International Institute for Psychical Research. He loved his job, which required him to investigate and verify weird events. But the spiritualist press had recently turned against him. The best-selling weekly Psychic News accused him of being cynical about the supernatural and unkind to mediums, charges that were so damaging to his reputation as a psychical researcher and his future in England that in January he had sued for libel. He was now desperate to prove his sincerity and his aptitude. He needed to find a ghost. Fodor obtained a copy of the latest pictorial. The paper had run the poltergeist story next to a giant cut-out photograph of Adolf Hitler, who was poised to invade Austria, so that the news of the haunting seemed to issue from the Führer's shouting mouth. Ghost wrecks home, ran the headline. Family terrorised.
1: Wonderful, thank you.
2: Um, Alma's...
1: Fielding's life had been rather hard up to that point, hadn't it, that beneath beneath what appeared to be quite a sort of steady ex- exterior, she'd had a really quite a hard time of it, hadn't she?
2: Yes, uh, Fodor sort of gradually uncovered this um, in a series of interviews with her and hypnosis and word association tests um, that he carried out over weeks in 19- nineteen. And,
1: and he developed this methodology himself for researching, all of these things were his own toolkit, were they?
2: Yeah, they were. He'd become quite um, interested in psychoanalysis and the psychology of haunted people, um, which was fairly controversial even within the institute, which was mostly people by individuals who were spiritualists who believed that the that supernatural events were um, caused by the dead, the returning dead.
1: And through these techniques, he was able to uncover that things were not quite what they seemed. With with elma fielding is that
2: yeah right. he found um, that she'd suffered from a lot of illness some of which seemed psychosomatic some of it certainly certainly not so she'd undergone a lot of um physical pain and she'd become temporarily blind at one point in her life and um, she'd had breast cancer and had a breast removed she had recurring kidney problems um and she'd had various accidents and uh, a fall as a child that stopped her uh, but pursuing a career as a, an acrobat or actress um, and she had, she'd suffered uh, miscarriages and, and problems of that sort too. So she had a lot of, uh, of, of physical trauma in her past and, and Fodor s- started to suspect that she might also have suffered some emotional shocks and damage. That were somehow tied up with the poltergeist activity and her other supernatural phenomena.
1: And you, said, you mentioned psychoanalysis earlier. Is it true? It's the case, isn't it, that Freud himself took an interest in the case, didn't he? Yeah,
2: he'd, um, to, towards the um, end of 1938. Fodor was thrown out of the International Institute um, because of his investigation of Alma, both the intrusive methods he used, but also the radical ideas that he was bringing to it, which disgusted many of his colleagues. And um, so he was jobless and Um, And at a very low ebb and his wife heard that Freud was in London he'd just fled Vienna and um, set up home in Hampstead and um, so Fodor's wife took Fodor's manuscript the study of Alma Fielding to Freud and asked him to read it and to Fodor's complete joy uh, Freud read it and um, endorsed the the methods and the intellectual analysis that that Fodor had made of the of the case Um, and uh, this Fodor copied the letter and sent it to the institute that had just fired him without comment as a sort of rebuke to them and um, shortly afterwards uh, he left England for America. Gosh,
1: gosh, so there's a, there's there's a wonderful there's a wonderfully delineated sense in the book that these supernatural eruptions are also psychoanalytic eruptions that the that there's a real sort of sense of the frustration and pain of some of these working class women. Where where does that where, where does that is, I mean obviously there's Fielding's own specific pain, but do you think there was something more g- generally going on in the culture at the time?
2: I noticed that a lot of the um, the, the mediums surrounding Fodor and and winning acclaim on on the stained halls throughout the country were women, working class women, and um, it seemed clear that that this career did offer an extraordinary escape for for them from fairly constrained lives, and and a strange kind of power by making themselves vessels for the voices of the dead and so on, they could sort of disavow the fact that they were setting themselves up as figures of authority, but they were figures of authority who could command audiences, who could tell people what to do, <laughs> who could yeah. tell people what they were thinking, who could foretell the future. So it was a it was a massive sort of female working class female power grab it's in. Fascinating. A way.
1: Absolutely fascinating. And, do you, and is it possible, or do you think, in what in your mind, is it connected to the gathering clouds of war? In the sense that it's it's hard to conceive that less than 20 years later, they're pro- facing the prospect of total war all over again, having already having now known fully what an, a modern industrial war would be like. It must have yeah. been terrifying, I would have thought.
2: The, the seances sort of um, took off in, in England in the 20s, in the wake of the war and the flu yeah. pandemic because of the the great grief and all all the losses.
1: And so many bodies that never came home as well, weren't there, there were so many.
2: Yes, so I suppose that sort of, the longing to sort of, to have the dead return was sometimes quite sort of literal, that there had never been a a, a burial or a sort of closure. And so the atmosphere in which Alma's poltergeist came and all the poltergeists of the thirties was, seances had become commonplace and, by the late 1930s, as well as the dark memories of the First War, there was a dread of the coming war. There were stories in the papers all the time about Hitler and Mussolini and the preparation, rearmament, preparations for defences in the case of aerial bombardment. And um, it seemed to me that the, that the poltergeists were sort of expressions of, of, a, of a kind of national jitteriness and anxiety, as well as rather. Um, wonderful escapes from it. So you could read in the papers about these sort of crazy violent happenings um, that were not war, that were sort of somewhere on the border between the factual and the fictional and therefore not as truly threatening. So they seemed to fulfill a, a variety of of kind of emotional functions. But one of them was definitely as a sort of expression of, of fear, I think, um, and and the memory of of fear too.
1: You draw that out really well in the book, I think. Um and um, you uh, 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 a reader uh, so some a potential reader someone who hasn't yet read the book might assume that um that Nandor and Alma are have a highly adversarial relationship but it wasn't quite like that was it but well, it didn't become that way towards the end it seems
2: no it seems um they were both uh, sort of enchanted by one another in a way and when um Fodor took her to the institute for further investigation he gave her a whole new life, a whole new world to inhabit, in which she was admired and acclaimed and she was an object of fascination. And um, so he he was fascinated by her and she was enchanted by him. But as the investigation progressed, he also became sort of her persecutor because he had to check whether she was fraudulent. And he was setting traps for her and chasing her down and taking secret X-rays of her body. And there was something almost sort of sadomasochistic developed between the two of them, a power game. Um, But but it it stemmed from a kind of a desire to believe in each other and to trust each other. And so there was something um, quite enchanted and and even sort of loving as well as admiring between the two of them. And the anger and frustration that develops in the course of the investigation stems from the fact that they, they really wanted to believe in each other. So it's a very um, complex relationship that becomes darker <laughs> as, the, as the story progresses.
1: There's such rich characters. I, I do hope it makes it onto television, this story. Um, one, i have almost out of time, unfortunately. Um, couple, couple more questions. I mean, how, do, how, how, um, how good were your uh, archives and other things? I mean, how hard was it to research the book?
2: Well, I thought that I wouldn't, I didn't have much to go on to begin with, but I went to um, an archive in Cambridge, uh, the Psychical Research Archive, that held various papers um, that mentioned Fodor. So I thought I might find some peripheral information about him, some stories about him there. But when I, I went and ordered the documents, I found that they'd been wrongly catalogued. And in fact, one of them was a folder about this very case. And so it was stuffed with photographs, the x-rays of Alma's body, transcripts of this Oh, era. how
1: exciting. You must've had a surge of excitement when you came across
2: Oh, up. it was just wonderful. and. Um, and it meant that I had all the sort of raw material as if I were kind of on the spot with, the, with reading the transcripts the night after the saleses took place or whatever and trying to um, dig out which bits were most um, relevant or rich or where the clues were. So it was like um, a sort of detective work with all the, the original evidence laid out before me. So that, <laughs> you- means, that was great.
1: Do you identify with uh, with um, <coughs> excuse me with Nandor or indeed with Mr. Witcher? I mean, they are you are sort of doing the same thing as them in both of those books, aren't you? To some extent,
2: yes, I think. no, but in both cases, the the stories are sort of seen kind of through their eyes, and they are like um, representatives of the researcher or author because they're trying to find out what what's true what really happened and why. And um, so they are kind of agents <laughs> of mine. But um, there's also a way in which I thought of Alma as a kind of representative of, of, a, of a writer too, because she was created, she created the story. She's the author and, of herself. Yeah. And she um, she may have used sort of craft at some points in, in her, um, you know elaboration of what what she felt, but she was trying to express something true by setting up um, these these maneuvers and uh, manipulations. And so there was a way in which um, which she she was the constructor of the story and and choosing how to lay it out and how to use the materials available to her to express something about herself.
1: Perfect. That's all we have time for, I'm afraid. Thank you so much for telling us about your terrific book and the very best of luck with the rest of the competition. Thank you,
0: Kate. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's all we have time for in this special mini edition of Read Smart. Big thank you to Kate and to Toby. The 2020 winner of the Bailey Gifford Prize will be announced next week on the 24th of November in a special virtual ceremony do please follow at BG Prize on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram to find out more information. And do join me next week in our final episode for the year where I'll be interviewing the newly announced 2020 winner of the prize. As always, big thanks to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their support of this podcast. Until the next time, bye-bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.